Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled, entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It will really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Hello everyone, it's your host Ali Jaffe and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. We've got a very exciting guest on today. You may know him as Dr Ethan on social media. So for those that don't know him, Ethan is a fourth year medical student at the University of Nottingham. He's also an extremely popular YouTuber and social media star, amassing over 100k followers. Ethan began posting on social media in 2016 about student life at university and then as the years progressed he began to transition to more of a medical student based page posting about the ins and outs of medical school, life as a medical student and more recently the impact of Covid-19. He started a YouTube page in late 2019 called Student Doctor and it has recently been rebranded a few months ago. It provides engaging and fun content to prospective and current medical students, from the process of application to Q&As about medicine and health. Even more recently, Ethan has proved to be a TikTok sensation. Check out his Instagram for some examples of his videos, and of course his TikTok. Aside from medicine, he really enjoys sports such as tennis and football, and also goes to the gym frequently. He's an inspirational millennial and demonstrates how misconceptions about medicine, medical school and life as a medical student can be dispelled in an informative, fun and engaging way. Hey Ethan, it's such a pleasure to have you on the pod. Um, It looks like you've been very busy, so thanks for making the time and welcome. So, um, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? and what your name is on Instagram and, you know, how it all came about on your Instagram and YouTube channels. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, obviously, yeah, it's good to be on the podcast. Um, it's been a number of weeks, I guess, that we've been speaking about it, so it's good to kind of finally get to the day of recording. Um, so, yeah, a little bit about me. Um, yeah, so, obviously, my name's Ethan. I'm a medical student, um, usually based in Nottingham. Um, in my fourth year, um, although obviously at the moment things are a little bit different, which I'm sure we'll talk mm. about throughout the podcast. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of into my last 12 months, I guess, before I fully graduate. Um, and yeah, and in terms of my social medias, um, I guess I go through probably two different kind of names that people see. One is Student Doctor, which is kind of where my YouTube channel's at, and it kind of gives this idea of... I guess help to both kind of prospective medical applicants and also talking about kind of general medical topics as well. 
and then my Instagram um, username's at Dr. Ethan and it kind of again just gives a general impression about life as a medical student and just kind of giving a global impression of what being a medical student is all about. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting journey, isn't it? I can definitely relate to that there. We, we produce yeah. a lot of funny stories <laughs> and some very strange ones. Um, it makes very good, yeah, dinner party chat. So fantastic you've capitalised on that and, yeah, made social media channels to match it. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but I'd love for you to tell your listeners about what made you decide to apply for medicine and just a little bit about your backstory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I guess this question is a good one as well for interviews, so it's a good one to get practice in anyway. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, for me, um, I felt like I kind of decided to apply for medicine quite early on. Um, I don't mean, it definitely has its benefits in terms of getting your application ready. Um, so for me, I'd say probably from around about year eight or year nine, I felt fairly kind of... Um, heavily set towards going to medicine. Um, you know, science had always been something I was quite interested in. Um, I guess one of my better subjects at school. So it felt, you know, something in that scientific realm would be something I'd want to go into. And then the other aspect of it was I just felt like I wanted to do something to help others, something that was rewarding, something that, you know, you could really make a difference day in and day out um, without trying to sound too cliche. Um, and then I guess sort of later on, just before I applied, also I did the kind of work experience and got more of a definite impression of what doctors and sort of other healthcare professionals do. And then that's, you know, I guess the, the area and the point at which I definitely chose to go into medicines after that work experience I did. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Penny dropping moment. And no regrets so far with one year to go? No, I don't, I don't think so. No, I mean, I've been fairly happy... Um, know at medical school so far I mean obviously it is a very kind of rigorous tough degree like I think it is um it's not for everyone ultimately but you know I wouldn't say I've got any regrets it's all I'd do it all over again yeah I mean that's what you want to hear when you're this far through you kind of want to be on the trajectory for the rest of your life yeah it'd it'd have been a lot of money wasted as well on student loans etc yeah I'm glad that I'm no, I'm with you there. Um, so tell us, you began saying, yeah, it is tricky. There are its ups and downs. So if I was a prospective secondary school student in sixth form, how do you kind of give a good picture of medical school that's quite balanced to inspire them, but also make sure that they're aware that, you know, it's not an easy ride. It is kind of like a lifestyle change. I don't know if you'd agree yeah. with that compared to other uni students. You're on a very different regime. You're in a professional program. So what kind of, yeah. like, spiel would you give them? Um, I think it is definitely apparent that I feel medicine is, I guess, a very different sort of career and course for a lot of other uni. A lot of, you know, what other people go to university for. I mean, in terms of, you know, professional expectations of you, I think you've got to, you're kind of held to a different account, possibly to different degrees. Um, yeah, so there is that aspect. Obviously, there's a lot of work involved, but you know, but ultimately, you're able to kind of have a level of responsibility and being able to kind of help people that kind of is unparalleled, I guess, to a lot of other careers. Mm-hmm. So you know, with that kind of responsibility, you're able to really help different people. Um, you know, I mean, depending on what medical school you're at, you also kind of come into contact with patients quite early, which you know is that you know not a lot of degrees really offer because you know they're very kind of lecture based um so yeah ultimately it's a very different it's a very different degree but mm. you know if, if that's kind of where your passion lies i'd really say go for it 
absolutely and especially at a time like this um our health heroes that's all we really have to say that's what yeah, everyone in yeah. the is at the moment they're absolute heroes and yeah they are cherished by society and it is a very rewarding degree as you say so um tell our audience who may be some sixth form students about the process of your what your application was like and you know any of the challenges and hurdles i know that you talk a bit about this on your social media channels yeah, so I mean, I'd say to be honest, the application process and probably the thought behind applying probably starts even before sixth form. I think you really have to kind of, I'd probably say even from about year nine, year ten onwards, you really have to kind of put a lot of thought into everything you do. Um, you know, obviously you want to get really, you know, quite a good GCSE to be competitive, you know, and even then, you know, you need to pick A levels at, I guess, 16, which ultimately... Um, would allow you to do medicine because you know most universities need chemistry um, and probably biology or another science mm-hmm. and then there's always the other aspects that you have to think about all the time you know be it work experience or voluntary work um, interview preparation and so on so I think to be honest the application process probably starts at yeah around sort of 15 um, I wouldn't say medicine is something that you can really go into sort of the last minute, mm. or you'd really, or you well, you might be able to, but I think you would, you'd struggle to be competitive um, to do it really. So, yeah, I think it requires a lot of thought and a lot of kind of planning. But I think with enough planning, you can kind of manage your time effectively across all the different areas. Absolutely, and you're right. It really is. Uh, kind of application that you need to show a long-standing interest and marry up your kind of um yeah marry up your kind of activities to create a very yeah appealing picture um so what do you think some of the hurdles are um i I think you know when i look at my own kind of application i wouldn't say there was any sort of specific hurdles i think i'd probably say the whole process was one giant hurdle Mm. um just because, again, there's just so many aspects because, again, you are trying to juggle, you know, getting the sort of top grades to make you competitive along with all the other aspects of the application. So, you know, for, for most of the degrees, you know, you, you're you on to get a certain set of grades, which, you know, it's hard, it's hard in itself. I mean, A-levels felt hard at the time, GCSEs felt hard at the time. Um, but with medicine, you know, you've got the added pressure of, um, you know, trying to carry out all these different sort of experiences, be it work experience, voluntary work maybe having some sort of hobby or skill to talk about. Um, and then, you know, alongside your A-levels, then you are trying to revise for the admissions tests mm-hmm. and prepare for interviews. So I think the biggest hurdle is probably time management mm-hmm. because ultimately you haven't got that much time to try and fit all these things in. Absolutely. And um, I'd also say, yeah, perseverance is key. I actually didn't get in first time round. So I took a gap year um, before going to Bristol and reapplied. And second time round, it just felt like it was almost a blessing. And, you know, I believe everything happens for a reason. I felt so much more mature and more confident. I had interviews the first time round and I definitely felt like I was just a school kid who I didn't feel very... I didn't feel like I'd done anything different. I didn't think I sat, I stood out. And so, um, you know, having the gap year, I, at, in the beginning, I thought it was quite daunting because so many of my friends who um, didn't apply for medicine had their place and they were all going off to uni. And I was like, this is what I want. This is what I've always wanted. I'm not going to go do biomed. I really want to, um, you know, 
make the decision to take the gap year and you know and it was hard at the time to so like oh I'm not going to be in the same social kind of um progression as the rest of my friends but I think early on to kind of have that experience is so good for your general life because as you probably know now like being a medic you are on a different path you have much um kind of you have a much longer time in education so you get married later you know you you become a homeowner if you can much later everything happens later so I thought it's quite a good learning curve at the start to realize it's not all like the life isn't all about school and staying in the same social group and all everyone doing the same thing and then um, I went off and did a lot of different things on my gap year related to like healthcare and it just allowed me to talk a lot more at interview and so you know if you're lucky you get in first time round so well done Ethan if, you, if you're a bit of a flop like me you get in second time round it doesn't matter because you know you can still um, you can still get in and even if you don't get in and you still really want to do it like my co-founder in he went off and did biomed at Sussex and then He's just graduated doing the postgrad course at Bristol as a doctor. So, if you really want to do it and it's your passion, there are loads of routes in. Don't give up. Yeah, I think to be fair as well, I think there is almost that mentality, like touching on your point about a gap year. I think there's certainly like the mentality at my school that a gap year was like a really bad thing. My school, the same. They were so against it. They were like, oh, it's such a dos. Go and do something you're actually good at. I was very good at languages rather than sciences, unlike you. And they were like, go do a language. I was like, no, that's not what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. I think there's definitely mentality. It's, you know, probably most schools that, you know, they want to get as many people into university first time round. Mm. You know, you, <laughs> I don't think a gap year, you know, I remember when I was applying, I thought, you know, gap year is probably the worst possible outcome. You know, I, I need to get into medicine first time. I'd see myself as a failure if I, you know, if I didn't, you know, and obviously I did get in first time, but I think in hindsight, you know, gap year would have been equally quite a, quite a good thing, like it wouldn't have been mm. nearly as kind of bad as maybe I would have imagined it to be, or maybe what my teachers would have said at the time. Yeah, and I think it's such in interesting language that you draw upon there, that you had, you know, you set yourself such high expectations and standards, which of course you met, which is brilliant, but it's just the term failure, it's such a you know, detrimental word that we use during our schooling career, you know, we're both ambitious people doing medicine and, um, you know, other ambitious students use the same terminology and then at medical school we hear all about um, you're a failure if, you know, you, you don't pass your exams first time round and it becomes that kind of insidious thing that just becomes a part of that culture. So um, how do you think that we can kind of um, normalise failure and fallibility in um, medicine and how have you managed to deal with any kind of, um, maybe you've had, maybe maybe you're so perfect that you've had no kind of um, backward steps over the years, I know I've had plenty, um, but how do you, you manage to deal with those step backs and setbacks and everything like that? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's a really good point, I mean... I mean, I think everyone's had some sort of setback. I mean, you know, I did get into medicine the first time, but but equally, when I did get the offer from Nottingham, I, you know, it was my only offer. Um, you know, I did I got rejected from Oxford that I'd applied to. So, you know, that, that felt like a failure on my part. Um, and then, you know, I, I also interviewed at Cardiff and Newcastle. Um, I did end up with, like withdrawing my offer um, from both of those once I got my offer from Nottingham. But to be quite honest, I'm pretty sure I wasn't going to get an offer from either of them anyway. Um, 
the only reason I kind of withdrew from Cardiff and Newcastle was just because you know they were, they all were quite the same grades. There was not really much point of having insurance. Um, so yeah, I mean, for me, I think ultimately for all kind of medical student applicate like applicants, all of them are kind of high fevers. So I don't think many many people that apply to medicine are used to failure, which is often kind of what causes this mm. kind of big drop in emotions if you do have a setback because mm. you know, most people who apply to medicine are probably you know in the top so many percent of their kind of school cohort. Um, yeah, they're used to getting the top grades, but but actually. You know, you can have all the top grades to study medicine and then just fail at interview and then you can feel like your whole application's just gone to waste. So yeah, it's very difficult. And then you know, when you get to medical school as well, mm. you know, again, you're with so many other kind of high achievers from school that if you do fail an exam that, you know, obviously would be quite um, obsessing for you. I mean, I've not failed an exam myself at medical school, but I know, you know, others that have and I think it does kind of almost give them a bit of a reality check or a bit of a kind of um, you know, just give emotions of you know, feeling quite sad and upset because they ultimately do feel like a failure. So I think mm. it's hard to it's hard to, it's hard to I guess make that kind of change of normalising failure in like a really quick time span. But I think hopefully if enough people can talk about it, that it is it is kind of normal. It's um, completely yeah. normal, exactly. There's so many people at medical school that you know if you look across the cohort that would have failed one exam or that have failed. Um, you know, various practical assessments or, you know, things that we have throughout the year that there's plenty of those, you know, I may not have failed an exam at the end of the year, but there's plenty of practical skills that I've had to remediate upon mm. that I've never, you know, that I've not passed first time. That ultimately doesn't mean that, you know, you can't become better in the future and then ultimately become a good doctor. Exactly. And I, I couldn't agree more with you. It's all about talking about it. I mean, I know some medics like to, you know, keep their reputation as kind of hard workers who always achieve whatever efforts they put um, they put in, they get out the result they want, but sometimes it just doesn't happen like that. And I know um, I'm very lucky in the sense my friendship group at medical school, we all, you know, joke around with our failures and, um, you know, there's no kind of secrecy there. It's very open and honest, which I think is so important, but it is really tricky to have those uh, conversations because you feel like, sometimes becomes about superiority and you feel inferior and not as worthy and that all these damaging emotions that kind of get conjured up just at the you know idea of a pass fail situation which is so crazy because bigger picture there are so many unbelievably successful surgeons and doctors who have like careers in the media blah 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 who've all failed at some point and there's so many you know amazing TED talks and um you know huge tycoon to they failed at their first thing and look at them now and I think failure is such yeah. an important thing because it allows you to reassess and reset and really just think about what you want and um, what your skill set is and the areas that are your weaknesses and your strengths and it just allows you to kind of have that reassessment within yourself and reflection and that's what I think the GMC really want from us. They want reflective learners and people who have made a mistake. Then you file it. You talk about why you've made it, so you don't make it again. And if you don't make any mistakes, then one day, if you do have like a huge crisis and everything unravels, you won't have those kind of coping mechanisms to deal with it and talk about it and move on. And you could just end up doing something really damaging. Like, okay, I quit medicine then. You know because. It, yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, if you yeah. don't have those little mistakes and those little losses, 
it could all lead to one huge loss and then you don't actually know how to cope so yeah yeah I mean to be honest yeah failure is all about kind of it's that reassessment mm. and everyone needs that at some point um so I think yeah you know, failure at the time can often feel you know it is really upsetting but I think you know longer term it is actually quite beneficial you know they always say you know the person that never fails is probably the person that never learns so very well it's... said wise human wise human um, yeah, short and sweet after my ramble. I couldn't agree more with that statement. Um, and I think also just, especially, you know, it's really important to fail or, you know, to, for another word, to kind of not succeed to the degree you wish you had. Um, in loads of specialties that are very competitive, I think the more competitive the specialty, probably the more likely the failure rates are. So, take surgery and if we're taking like a case study like I did if you read the book but I absolutely loved it do no harm by the neurosurgeon Henry Marsh and he's like this famous neurosurgeon done loads of documentaries um English guy and he basically talks about the failure rates in neurosurgery and how common it is to just not know what you're doing it's the you know unknown territory of the brain and some surgeries work out well and some surgeries you know the patient wakes up and they've got multiple deficits and disabilities from your own work and that kind of you know pressure then that gets put on you that it was you who did that must be absolutely you know horrendous but you have to learn to deal with it because that's what medicine is it's we're not robots we will make mistakes as we go along and yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're only human. And I mean, yeah. you know, I guess when, when, I look, when I look back at, you know, applying to medical school myself, um, the, Nottingham, the Nottingham interview I had was the fourth and, you know, and final interview I did have. And ultimately, it was my best interview by far. And I think, you know, well, the main reason I wouldn't have got an offer from the other three unis was because I didn't interview well um, at the time. But it was only through that kind of... I guess that failure in my head once I left the interview and then that reassessment of like, okay, how can I do better in the interview that probably would have made the Nottingham, the Nottingham interview so much better than the rest and that's kind of, I guess, ultimately why I got the offer. Mm. No, that is such a good point. I mean, it comes down to practice and perseverance, I think, not giving up from the onset and just carrying on on that path. And yeah, it is. we definitely need to work on it. I think, um, you know, us millennial medics are doing a better job at kind of having these honest and open conversations like you and I are having now about failure, about mental health, about self-care and well-being. But, you know, older generations, it always has been that kind of stiff English upper look. I'm a, you know, I'm an absolute superhuman of a doctor. I can do night shifts and still do this, that and the other. And, you know, medics, they're they're so multi-talented, they're swimmers, they're violin players, you know, they do all sorts of different things and um, I think sometimes society and the media think of medics as superheroes and then when they do mess up, you know, like with the Baragaba stuff, um, in the news, you know, when medics do mess up, it's like, oh, that is the absolute end of the world and it sometimes absolutely is, especially when there's loss of life and, you know, you can't, even imagine what the family who are affected by, um, you know, a, a medic's mistake feel like. But at the end of the day, it just comes back to, you know, we need to actually create the environment for honest and open conversations so that things are put in place and don't escalate to such severe things. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Mm. And so in terms of just um, mental health and well-being, could you tell our listeners how you kind of time manage and 
balance everything. And we're going to get on to talking about your side hustle, your social media channels and everything. But tell us how, um, yeah, for medics who are listening, but also prospective medics, how do you manage your time and look after yourself? Yeah, I think, I think, I guess, you know, the way I would manage my time, I guess, you know, you can apply it to really anybody. Um, and I think it mainly goes down to just scheduling your day, you know, be it if you want to do that, you know, the week before. So if, you know, you've got a Monday to Friday week of placement or whatever, then, you know, plan your week on the Sunday night, work out, you know, what hours have I got that I need to be in placement for or in lectures for. And then, you know, those few, maybe three, four, five hours that you've got in the evening to yourself, then, you know, I typically give myself maybe a little bit of time to study if I need to, um, you know, if I'm getting close to exams. But then, you know, four or five times a week, I'll also, you know, go to the gym or once a week, it might be going to the pub with the mates or a night out every few weeks. So ultimately, it's about scheduling, I'd say, because unless you can really kind of write down what time, you know, what time is allocated mm-hmm. to different tasks, it, it makes it very hard just to kind of, I think it's very difficult to wing it in terms of medical school because mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, your contact hours, the amount of time that you have to kind of dedicate to study is a lot bigger than most other kind of professions and degrees so mm-hmm. if you can kind of structure that structure that as much as possible and uh, it makes things so much easier yeah couldn't agree more structure very key that's the key word <laughs> and so now onto the very exciting bit tell us how you got into social media and youtube and how you've got such a grand following. You've got something like, what, 120k followers on Instagram? Yeah, so um, for me, getting into social media, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I kind of imagined myself getting into. Um, you know, in, interestingly enough, I didn't actually get any kind of real social media platforms until just before I started university. It was always something that I guess was drilled into me from my parents, you know, don't kind of get social media before your exams, it'll be a distraction. And so, you know, I didn't get I didn't get social media until probably maybe four or five months before starting university. So that would have been, you know, at age sort of 17, 18, um, in, that's back in 2016 now. So, yeah, I'd always been kind of, I say, I say a social media phobe and I never really used it, um, you know, like most of the teenagers my age. Um, but yeah, I did end up getting it in 2016 because I guess ultimately I felt like probably the only person that didn't have it at that point. Um, and really, once I started university, I just used it, I guess, as a platform just to document my time at university. Um, you know, given this was probably well, nearly about four years ago now, it wasn't really something that people did. So although, kind of, you know, you have, I guess, established niches like fashion and fitness and beauty, there wasn't many people that really spoke about university life, student life, but that wasn't something that really existed out there. So, you know, I took that, um, just kind of really documenting just, you know, nights out and just kind of general social activities at university. Um, you know, and people, I guess, seem to relate to that and like that. Um, and then, basically, as the years have progressed, I've then changed it into more of a medical-driven platform because, you know, as I've become more experienced and I understand um, more medical things, then it become, it just became more kind of appropriate to make it, you know, into a more medical-driven platform, especially as I'm near to graduation now. Mm. Um, 
and then yeah the YouTube has kind of started again you know in the last kind of six to twelve months it was something that I've been planning and thinking about because ultimately you know Instagram's a great platform but it's not it's not necessarily the best platform for kind of longer a longer mm. term kind of video driven content so that's kind of where the YouTube started as well fab and so would you say it's just kind of happened organically like you didn't set out to really you know become verified and have you know which is such a huge achievement congrats and um to have such a large following it just all kind of happened organically i guess so yeah i mean it's certainly yeah from the outset it was never i never intended you know as i said really to really use social media at all because I, i'd always kind mm. of maybe kind of naively envisaged, you know, envisaged it as something that was a bit of a waste of time because, you know, I don't, I don't want to put loads of time on social media and I could be revising. But, yeah, I guess over the, over the sort of, you know, the last few years, it's kind of just grown and grown. Um, and ultimately, you know, the, the thing I like about kind of social media, especially with kind of medicine and um, kind of being a medical student and sort of health and everything to do with that is that, it's a great way of kind of educating like the young the younger generation. Like it's it's a massively cool platform to like mm. talk about public health. You know, we can sort of if we really want to kind of engage younger people in health and medicine, and ultimately social media is probably the best way to do it, you know. Even you know, looking at TikTok now, just how much of a younger audience kind of looks at that. You know, probably people a lot younger than us mm. would be the sorts of people that you typically you know find and look at on TikTok, but um, it's just a great way of engaging younger people and you know, people across all ages ultimately now. Absolutely. And you're so right. I think it's all about making public health kind of more, I like put it, putting it more into bite-sized chunks and make it less kind of top line, um, kind of highbrow content and making it engaging and simple for the public to understand. And I think, yeah, you're doing a great job and there are lots of kind of other people out there who have also seen this light and we actually had, um, on our second episode of the pod, we had um, the organisation Bite Back who are a spin-off from Jamie Oliver's uh, company who are essentially secondary school students who are hoping to of childhood obesity by by 50% by 2030 and um, Tasha who we had on was absolutely fantastic you know saying what you know the people of the future the young people need to actually understand how nutrition and food labeling and public health all works and how they can make healthier decisions for themselves when there's kind of insidious food junk food advertising all around them so I definitely think your voice is really important and it's amazing you saw the light so early on yeah I think well I think even now you know there's, there's not that many people you know if you compare to the more conventional niches you know, fashion fitness and so on they're very very kind of saturated or oversaturated even because mm-hmm. there's so many people that kind of obviously love going to the gym or they love kind of makeup or fashion whereas I think you know medicine is ultimately something that I think maybe even a few years ago it didn't feel like to people that it should belong on social media Mm. it was it was almost something that was it didn't feel appropriate to be on social media whereas I think Mm. now there's more of a certainly more of an acceptance towards it and actually you know it's a great way as we said of kind of you know getting people you know our age but even a lot younger to be kind of a lot more kind of interested in their health 
Yeah, exactly. To become proactive about their health, to become empowered to, you know, make healthier lifestyle choices without kind of shoving it down, yeah, down <laughs> their throat. They're making the informed decision from engaging material that they're coming across on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think you're absolutely right. And it's true, medicine was very much something that was quite, um, you know, a thing that was quite... It was a thing in society that happened behind closed doors and we've always had that kind of hierarchy um, within society where, um, you know, in the past there have been very patriarchal medical, um, you know, clinician-patient relationships where, you know, you kind of go to the doctor for the doctor to tell you what to do. But now we're moving into more modern times where the patient and the doctor are in a partnership together to come up with the best management plan for that individual and try and make it as suited to the individual as possible. Um, you know, because there's no one size fits all sometimes, uh, well, most of the time. And I think it's really amazing that there's so many doctors that and dietitians and other allied healthcare professionals that have taken to Instagram and Twitter to share health information um, with people. Because yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think you know, the, the, the big distinction, I guess, as well, that is important to make is that you know people, kind of doctors or medical students, whatever, on Instagram, yeah, you know, they, they don't replace sort of you know physicians. They don't, they don't replace that intimate GP patient relationship. But what they actually do is kind of give patients that you know that, that knowledge to be able to then go to their GP and be like, okay, this is maybe something I've heard, or maybe this is something that I'm sort of now more educated upon, and then they can have that conversation. With I guess for me, you know, I guess it's important to say is that it doesn't replace that kind of Absolutely. that physician-patient relationship, which is ultimately, I guess, you know, the most crucial part um, for any patient. But it just gives them kind of more knowledge and more education, which means they can make better choices. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Because at the end of the day, and it is really important, um, so, you know, doctors cannot give out any individual advice. You can't be DMing direct messaging any doctors is very much about public health promotion I think is where doctors have a voice on Instagram and Twitter because they can talk about their specialty and basic kind of health messages um, that go within it that could help a patient uh, a person reading it you know go off on a kind of journey to find out more but as you say it's never going to be you're never going to get a management plan of how to manage your condition online because yeah that's not right you need to have so, yeah. the proper medical examination and history etc yeah i mean i think they, they kind of work quite well alongside each other yeah i mean yeah you raise a really good point obviously you know it's definitely not for sort of you know people like me or for sort of doctors to give out kind of yeah personalized advice on medications or prescriptions or you know the kind of diagnosis because ultimately that's well outside of someone's remit to cast it on social media i mean mm. you know of course doctors need a full examination history and even then they don't always get the right answer and they might need other investigations so exactly you know, that, that can never be expected to be done over instagram message or that yeah kind of thing. But like you say, they're super complimentary and I think it's just health promotion at the end of the day and talking about wellness as well as illness and that's what's quite helpful. Um, yeah. So what do you aim to achieve with your platforms? I think, yeah, um, I guess we've summed it up fairly well in terms of, you know, it's, it's a lot of it is about kind of health promotion and, and really reaching as many people as possible. I mean, you know, ultimately being a doctor 
you can only see one patient at a time, and that's, you know, so in some ways you're limited to the number of people you can help in a day. So I've been able to do that, but then alongside the kind of social media, I've been able to kind of educate sort of people more into the hundreds or into the thousands. That's a really powerful thing as well. I mean, you know, one thing we always have to bear in mind is that kind of public health mm. is, all, is, always, is always kind of more effective than just treating the individual. Because, you know, if we can change the kind of attitude and the mindset of a whole population, mm. then you can ultimately save a lot more lives in the long run than you can necessarily by just, say, symptomatically treating people. Yeah, you're totally right. And, I mean, that's exactly kind of the team consensus at Nutritank. We really want to be able to reach the masses and kind of create that paradigm shift to um, kind of get the message out there around the importance of nutrition and lifestyle medicine um, for prevention of chronic conditions, but also for management. And like you say, it, it's amazing how, you know, so many GPs that I know and specialty doctors and allied healthcare professionals are having chats with their patients about nutrition and lifestyle medicine. But at the end of the day, it needs to be that kind of widespread change that happens from, like you say, reaching population level rather than individuals so that that mindset change can just happen. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, mm. you know, these, these things, you know, this health education, it, it kind of starts at such a young age. You know, people and children, young children become influenced by what they see and read and hear from a very early age. So, you know, that's where I guess platforms like Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, mm. you know, they're used by so many young people. If you can get the kind of the right information out there at a young age, and that can be really beneficial. You're totally right. I mean, you hear so many, you hear so many stories. Wait one sec. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like you hear so many stories about kids that were playing with, you know, a family friend or relative stethoscope from a young age and heard a fun fact and that kind of, you know, imp made an impression on them and that's set them off on their journey to, you know, pursue a career in medicine. So you're absolutely right. Getting like short engaging things out like you do on your TikTok and your social media channels about health and fun facts about medicine you know can really can really go a long way so I want you to tell our audience um some of the fun facts and interesting pieces you put together yeah so away. I guess yeah the best one would probably be um TikTok now I mean when you look at my social media I do try and kind of structure them slightly differently just to kind of fit the platform that they're on um, so yeah, the YouTube is kind of longer form content. The Instagram is kind of, I guess, more of a generic content of what life's like. But yeah, the TikTok is a lot more kind of based around kind of fun, bite-sized kind of clips because ultimately TikTok's an app that you know people kind of watch it for five, ten seconds. It's very kind of needs to be very quick um, and snappy. Um, so yeah, a series that I'm kind of doing and have done on that would be weird medical facts, which kind of just gives. Silly kind of, I guess almost meaningless facts, but because they're kind of so silly, it just it just makes people kind of relate and find it funny, and it, it just mm. keeps their interest in medicine. And it stays in your head. I've not forgotten the ones on your TikTok. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, one that I spoke about was that you know stomach acid can dissolve razor blades, which you know, to a lot of kids is quite crazy because they're thinking, well, how am I still here because my my stomach acid hasn't dissolved my whole body yet. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of fun with. 
Yeah, that definitely it would pique my interest now, even not as a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not, it's not just for kids. I mean, you know, you're seeing people of all ages, you know, um, even my parents have got TikTok now. So, you know, it's certainly not just for younger people. Um, it's something everyone can, you know, relate to and find funny. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, yeah, I loved your one about guess what's the smallest bone in the body and... Yeah, it's, it's really engaging and we'll definitely link it into the show notes so um, our audience can check it out. Um, so tell us, it seems like you've got a big production. Um, I'm on video to you now and it's quite exciting to see inside Dr. Ethan's <laughs> chamber. So how did you get started on like knowing what to do in terms of your production and your editing? And yeah, is it all you or do you have a team? Yeah, I mean, so I guess, I start from the beginning, you know, it was something that, it was just an idea, um, I remember, I think it was probably last summer, well, I think I was just on holiday at the time, and, you know, I had this idea of, you know, I've got this Instagram account, but ultimately, you know, it's very kind of, again, short content, you know, how can I bring out much longer content um, that's video-based, and so that's where the idea for YouTube began, um, and from there, really, a lot of the kind of skills that I've got, I've just got off the internet and from experience I mean you know obviously you know it's, it's only audio only but currently behind me um, where I am sort of recording is my studio where I do all my content creation um, and so I've ended up building kind of two different sets to use um, for the YouTube channel I've also got uh, kind of lighting behind me and sound equipment um, and that's kind of been a case of trial and error but also kind of talking to the right people who have got experience on YouTube um, because ultimately, you know, I'm not qualified in video editing or video production or sound or lighting, so there's a case of learning it for yourself, but also if you, if you really can't find the answer, then, you know, asking other people that do know the answer. So, yeah, with regards to the YouTube channel, um, I, have learned, I have learned video, video editing, so kind of some of the earlier videos that I did, I did edit myself. I guess also, you know, not only to kind of because it's important to learn, but also, you know, it's... I think until you understand every part of the process, it's, it's hard then to kind of delegate to other people. Couldn't agree more. So, yeah, from that point, from kind of last few months onwards, I've, I have been working with a couple of guys um, in a production company that have really helped bring the vision to life because yeah, their, their skills are far better than mine will ever be in terms of graphics and animation. And that really does help bring the, the YouTube alive. But ultimately, you know, you can do this without all of that as well, because, you know, if people find you relatable, if people find you funny and exciting and informative, then people are going to watch you regardless of kind of video editing and production. You don't have to be an expert in any of those. Yeah, and I think that's what's actually so inspiring. I mean, especially for me and for our listeners, is that you don't actually have to be an expert in these things. It's all about having a go and you kind of get better as you go along like even from doing one of my first podcasts which was only like three and a half four weeks ago um somewhat into lockdown my team have already said to me oh you're getting better each podcast because they're obviously listening to it every week and it's just I agree with you it's about just kind of believing you can actually do it from the onset and it doesn't have to be perfect it kind of comes back to that idea of like fallibility and failure it doesn't have to be perfect you just build upon it and as long as you're like engaging and kind of you know be appealing then it's good to go and then it's great when you can collaborate with people or who are professionals yeah 
Yeah, I think, I think you raise a really good point, actually, that people only see the final product of a lot of these things. So, you mm. know, people see these, like, amazingly popular YouTubers, um, you know, five or six years down the line, and obviously they're very kind of good in front of the camera, and they basically nailed every part of the YouTube process, but actually, if you wanted to then go and look at some of their oldest videos, yeah. they'd be so, so different, and, and kind of arguably that is little micro failures each time they do a video just to get better and that's it's kind of that evolution um that people often forget about people you know and that's kind of everybody's guilty that we often just look at the final product the finished product and think you know that person was always like that but actually the journey they've got to become this top youtuber was probably quite a hard and difficult one you've raised yeah you've raised probably the most important point of our chat is that everyone starts from the bottom and it's yeah it's actually a really kind of endearing and um kind of humbling way to look at things because it really gives you that hope and that kind of inspiration to kind of push you on to each little next step and I love the phrase you used and it goes back to our chat earlier about small losses you said micro failures I love that and the micro failures don't have to be a bad thing it just builds you up and builds you up to actually you know get even better and better and it's so true if you look at any Hollywood actor any singer the early stuff you know it's no it's, you know you can't compare compared to yeah, yeah. Um, where yeah, they're at now especially especially like with social media and like YouTube and things mm. those little losses or little failures or setbacks whatever you want to call them they're so, so crucial because if you don't have those little reality checks every every time you post a video, you don't have those little bits of, okay, what could I do better or what was I doing well, what could I improve upon, you would never, ever get better at YouTube. Like you need those kind of little setbacks or those little reality checks, otherwise you know, your product doesn't ever improve. Exactly, and I think even though you know it was probably unintentional for you, it will probably make you into an even better doctor because you're so used to getting feedback and adapting to it to make those changes for what your audience wants, and you know you can kind of do that with your patients as well, and that's why feedback is so essential. And if you don't get all the praise you want one day, and you get a bit of criticism, it doesn't matter because, like you say, you can actually improve upon it. Yeah, um, no, I'd say like I probably I probably view failure as a good thing. Yeah. Right now. You know, if you'd asked me three or four years ago, would I have said that? You know, absolutely not. But it's only when you've failed lots of times. Mm. You might not have failed in the eyes of others, but to yourself, you may not have produced the right video or you may have got some negative feedback. But actually, I'd probably say failure is probably some of the the best things that could actually happen to somebody, Mm. as long as you kind of learn from that and then get better. Exactly, and having a thick skin. So um, you mentioned having you know a bit of negative feedback as everyone does along the way. I really want to hear from you and um, kind of want your advice to help our listeners. How do you hit, how do you deal with the haters? How do you deal with people who kind of give you a little bit of crap for what you're doing? Um, like you know maybe it's friends at medical school, people that you're not actually friends with, family members who just don't get it, who are a generation above you, who just don't see the point of social media. Tell us all about the woes. Yeah, I think, I think you know, you do have to have a bit of a thick skin to some extent, um, because inevitably, with whatever you'll do, you'll inevitably have, you know, people that won't appreciate or won't like what you're doing, and, you know, that, that, that can come from people that you don't know, that just send a random message, or... You know, it can 
in some cases come from people you know med- you know kind of you know university or other places people that you know know you um so I, I guess my main advice would be to really just try and not to listen um because ultimately yeah if those sort of people are making comments and are making negative remarks about your content it ultimately doesn't really mean a lot in the grand scheme of things they're ultimately kind of little comments that you'll probably forget about it by the next day and they don't really have a massive amount of meaning in the grand scheme of things. And ultimately, you know, the, the negative comments you can often turn into positive. You know, if people think your content's not very good, then, you know, you can use it as an inspiration, as a motivation to, to do even better. So, Or you can do what you did and actually include it in your content and um, put something out on TikTok about self-love. <laughs> and I absolutely love those ones that you do on TikTok where you quote the kind of bad remarks people have made and you say, you know what, it's all about loving yourself. Because, I mean, that's that's your company who you're with at the end of the day for the rest of your life, yourself. So. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. so true. I mean, you can always turn negative into positive. And also, you know, if you're able to put out the sort of content that shows that, you know, let's say I get negative remarks or negative comments, then, you know, other people can relate to that and be like, okay, well, you know, everybody can have this sort of criticism that it's not, it's not unusual, so you know if people can relate to that and if people get some sort of help from that, then that's really good too. Yeah, and so um, obviously our listeners can't see, but I'll hopefully take a little screenshot and put it up on our Instagram when we promo this. You've got your lovely backdrops in um, the background. Do you take those with you at uni, or do you do mainly like they don't look like the most transferable things? <laughs> Is that a new look for all your channels? They, 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 remain, they remain here for sure. Yeah. So, obviously, you know, given that the kind of the current climate um, of COVID-19, I've been back at home for a few months, which ultimately kind of makes the content creation side of things a little bit easier. Because, yeah. you know, I've got the sets, I've got most of my equipment with me. But, you know, when I'm at university, there's always ways around things. So, you know, if I want to film YouTube videos, I can always come back at the weekend. Fortunately, I can kind of live about an hour away from, from my home, to, um, from university to home, so it's not a big issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, ultimately, a lot of the other equipment is kind of transportable, like the camera, uh, microphone, and so on. But in terms of kind of the full kind of YouTube production, I do like to do sort of sets, so that's why I kind of come back home. But again, you know, if, you've got, if you've got a passion for something, you'll make the time for it, that's how I see it. Absolutely, couldn't agree more with that statement. And it's just how you kind of manage to fit things in. If you're passionate about something, you're going to make it part of your every day. Like I know when I'm doing tank stuff and balancing it with medical work, as long as I can stay passionate about it all, then I make time for it. But yeah, it's like leaving that essay you don't want to do right until the end. You've definitely not made time <laughs> yeah, for it. Yeah, so true. I think, you know, once you are passionate about something, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a chore. It's just mm. something that you don't, you don't need to think about it in some ways. Like, like when I wake up, I don't, I don't have to kind of think loads about YouTube and things. You know, it's just something that it's just become such a part of my schedule that I'm used to it and it doesn't feel like a yeah. bite. It's like second nature. No, I completely agree. So, um, speaking of COVID, how is it? You're at home um, with your family and everything. How is it actually affecting you um, within your position in medical school? So you're a fourth year, you've got one year to go. So how is it? How have your university reacted? Because I know every uni has a slightly different approach. Yeah, I mean, things have changed, like, really dramatically. Um, I mean, I can only talk, sort of, um, as of what's happened at Nottingham. 
So, you know, we've been on placement in our fourth year since last, probably last July now. So, coming up to sort of March, it was, we were open about eight, week, eight or nine weeks then from taking our fourth year exams. So, I believe it was around the middle of March we went into placement um, and we were then told just to go away, um, essentially because of the escalating problem with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So, at that point, all placement from the middle of March was just cancelled. And, you know, at that point, kind of everyone's, I guess, gone home. Um, because at that, at that point, we still weren't sure whether exams were happening because they were scheduled for the middle of May. So mm. we thought that we still had exams. Anyway, in the last sort of four or five days, we've now been told that all of our exams have been cancelled for fourth year. Um, but it, the problem is, and it comes with a massive but, oh, God. is that our fourth year exams have now been combined with our fifth year exams to take next year. Oh. So, there's not, there's, it's, it's actually turned out a lot worse than yeah. taking the exams. Of, we would have taken the exams around now, basically, if, it, if everything hadn't happened. Gosh, that is a massive but. I don't want to yeah. make you jealous, because I'm also fourth year at Bristol, so I feel bad talking about how ideal my situation is but <laughs> our fourth year exams got cancelled and we are not going to have them in fifth year and we've got a mock I'm calling it a mock but it's an open book exam at the end of June which we're going to have anyways two of them but they're open book um to consolidate our knowledge of the year so that's why we're still very sad quite ideal and no Oski which is yeah Quite great. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the thing. So, like, so when we told that, when we were told, you know, that obviously all our placement had been cancelled and that things were up in the air with exams, we, we did kind of assume at Nottingham that we would get, um, you know, a break from exams for this year, which we have done, but we didn't expect it to be. Yeah, having Yeah, two years worth of exams next year. Um, and, the, and the other thing which people are quite upset about is that there is going to be no. Um, well, as of this time of recording, there's going to be no um, OSCE resets in our final year. Right. Um, so, yeah, again, people aren't particularly um, sort of happy about that. But, yeah, it seems that, yeah, things are going to be a lot more stressful than they should be. Yeah, you just kind of have to really, that's why I think this time's quite important. It's really a time to kind of reset and look after yourself. Because, yeah, my fifth year is also not going to be ideal because uh, we will have extra bits to do that we haven't been able to do this year. Um, but I guess it's just a time to kind of reflect because there really hasn't been a year, um, you know, since school where we've not had exams. So it's kind of fortunate in a way to feel like not that, like having that pressure removed just for a little bit, even though it will come again, but just to kind of, you know. Yeah, it's definitely definitely a strange time because like you said, you know, we've had exams pretty much every summer, GCSEs, A-levels. Even those school internal summer exams before that, like there's always been Mm. summer exams, yeah. So yeah, it's the first summer, obviously in a very kind of difficult situation where I'm not going to be having exams. and yeah, realistically as well, it probably will be the, the largest amount of time that you know people like me and you will have off probably for the rest, <laughs> the rest of our kind of careers. Because once we kind of start work, yeah. then I don't anticipate getting so much time um, at home. F three. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially. 
mentally, potentially. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I agree with you. It is it is a very it's a very special time, very unusual, but it can be special. Everyone's situation is different. They're obviously I know um, friends close to me that have been tragedies along the way and everyone's situation is totally different but if you're in a good situation it can be quite special having this time so um, do you have any tips for students who um, might find this time quite stressful at the moment do you have any tips around um, that great word we spoke about earlier structure and you know how to keep up with well-being and self-care yeah, I think it, you know, it's ultimately, especially at the moment, it's something that you can't really prepare for. You know, nobody was, you know, there's never, there's never any preparation for a pandemic, um, whether that be a medical school or just for anybody. Um, and I think I think the main thing that was stressful for, for me and for a lot of other people was the uncertainty of exams and, you know, will placement resume and so on. So, as I said, you know, in the last sort of four or five days, a lot of that's been clarified for us, which... It inevitably helps in terms of kind of well-being and feeling less stressful. Yeah, that uncertainty's been removed. Yeah. Yeah, but I, but I think equally, you know, for for a lot of the, for a lot of people as well, even just the kind of general climate of things, it is still very stressful. So I think the main advice that you can that I can really give to anyone is just to seek help as quickly as possible. You know, that could just be a conversation with a family member or a friend or a partner or you know it could be taking that to the university but ultimately you need to be able to speak and have the confidence to speak to people about your current situation because you know these sort of problems are so common especially at medical school and kind of for anybody really at university that you shouldn't be afraid to kind of voice those concerns you're so right and it's almost not more comforting I guess but it's the first time I guess if people are having um, mental health issues at this time amongst you know medical students and other university students a lot of people are in the same boat and that is something that is quite unusual that we're all being affected by this pandemic of course on different levels with different stresses and um, you know health issues and whatnot but at the end of the day it's the first time we really have that kind of collective um, sense of, you know, um, we're in this together. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, also a, a big thing that's kind of, I guess, come about, probably from, you know, our generation below, is that we're a lot more honest about mental health mm. and stress and anxiety, that I think there's a lot more, there's a lot, it's a lot more open. You know, a lot of people speak down social media, but there's also probably a lot more avenues to go down at university and so on, which is it's a lot more comforting than maybe, you know, this, if this situation happened 20 or 30 years ago, there wouldn't be the same kind of honest conversations about mm. mental health and well-being. Completely, and it's amazing to see how kind of the meaning of resilience has changed from generation to generation because, you know, for our generation, I would say resilience is now having the um you know having the bravery and the honesty with yourself to actually open up and talk about um you know hardships and issues you're going through so that you can actually sort them and not bury them but whereas like you say 20 30 years ago it was more about that suppression let's you know brush that under the carpet stiff english up a lip you know that it's it's fascinating the change in kind of um, meaning that it's taken on and resilience is you know to us medics and this generation all about kind of uh, learning from your mistakes and learning you know your limits and whatnot. Yeah, yeah for sure I agree and I mean I think as well you know for a lot of kind of medical students doctors and so 
people refer to it as like being on that hamster wheel and you don't want to get off it because getting off it will mean like a whole change of lifestyle, change of plans and it's more effort to have to redo something and blah 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 but sometimes it is just worth it and better in the long term to have that short term kind of faff of having to redo things and whatnot and being you know behind your uh, friends than having to deal with the actual burden of um yeah the kind of mental health um pressure you put upon yourself yeah i mean i think yeah there's, there's, there's i think also that responsibility for the university to yeah they, they do make it clear but also you know that kind of regular reiteration that you know, if you do tell us private concerns, it doesn't mean that it's going to affect your mm. place. Of course, that there is that again. There's that ability to be honest. Absolutely, and I know people who have suspended their studies and have come back. You know, completely fresh attitudes and mindsets. And you know, it's not for everyone, but sometimes you know you've got to do what's right for you and just try and um, avoid stigmatizing it. I think that's the issue. There can be a lot of stigmatizing. Um, kind of thoughts that come with time off or admitting you've having mental health issues and you're finding it harder than others and why am I finding it harder than the rest of my friends am I weaker what does this make of me and it's just like no it's everyone will have it at some point in their life it's almost sometimes better to have it earlier on so you know how to deal with it yeah I mean yeah there's, there's you know from my experience in Nottingham there's plenty of people that have taking a bit of time out, be it, you know, a physical problem, whether, you know, they've broken a leg or injured, you know, got injured on a sport, in a sports fix, sure, it could be, you know, to mental health, but, you know, most of the time, they've taken that year out and been a lot better from it, and, you know, the mm. medical school has kind of supported um, being, you know, reintegrated back into placement or into medical studies, and, you know, also, we have to remember that, you know, a medical career is a, is a long career, it's, mm. you know, probably 40 plus years. You don't need to be the person that kind of qualifies as a doctor at the earliest possible age because ultimately you'll be doing this for so long. No, you're completely right. Sometimes there isn't any rush and we shouldn't just be... You kind of get into that habit at medical school just hoop jumping, hoop jumping, hoop jumping, the next exam, the this, the this, the this. Sometimes you to breathe, reflect, assess where you're at and, yeah, um, let it flow. So... Um, what do you do, would you say? I know you said you like to go to the gym. What do you do to kind of relieve stress? Like what kind of activities or habits do you have that kind of allow you to, yeah, manage? Yeah, I mean, like you're saying, I think that the gym for me is a big one because, you know, I probably do that four or five times now, kind of in an evening, you know, after placement usually. Um, and it's just a great way for me to relieve stress. But, you know, ultimately... I guess, you know, you can do any activity, really, that you're passionate about, any kind of sport, or, yeah, even even really just spending time with your housemates or your friends, mm. but without having that conversation about medicine, probably. Couldn't agree more. Get home from placement and then switch off from medicine. I yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes, you know, when you, when you do start living with medics, you know, for me, they're the only people that are left at university now because everyone else has graduated, and, you know, you, you do become really close to the medics, but... You have to be careful not to kind of bring all the medical stuff and the revision into your conversations over the housemates. It's nice to have that kind of separation as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You just need to be able to chill and be an idiot in the evenings when you've 
when you finish the day otherwise it's just you're ne you never switch off and I think it's so important to have that kind of distinct distinction especially if you're on outplacement I don't know how it is in Nottingham but when you're on outplacement sometimes the accommodation is literally right next to the hospital so the distinction between like work life and um yeah like student life is you know very there's just no distinction there's no kind of line so you really have to make that effort to kind of put in those kind of self-care regimes that allow you to like separate the day yeah well, I think, to be fair yeah some of the kind of i think we have nothing we call them like district hospitals that we have to travel to and yeah so yeah for us we're kind of obviously based in Nottingham, so we can be based in Nottingham and Derby, which are kind of a lot closer for us. But when we have to kind of go to places like Lincoln um, or Mansfield, which are these kind of smaller district hospitals where you probably end up taking accommodation, mm. I think they can often be a lot harder for people. Um, you know, for me, I spent only I've only I've only spent four weeks actually at district hospitals so far, just because of how my allocations have gone. Which you know, it's been I guess a positive because. I think ultimately the time you spend at district hospitals can be quite hard because, as you said, the accommodation is next to the hospital. Um, you know, often there's not really the same facilities at some of these smaller hospitals that you maybe get in Nottingham in terms of even mm. things like gyms and shops and cinemas. And it ultimately makes things a lot harder, I guess, even in terms of transport. Mm. So there's definitely a lot of pressures, I think, from going out to further, further afield. But having that kind of, again, the friends and even, you know, even doing things on the weekend or mm. going back to Nottingham, that can really help. Absolutely. And, yeah, social connectedness in community is so important, I guess, when, yeah, when you are, just for medical school in general, but when you're on those outplacements and there's not a lot else to do. I've definitely been there um, in some of the rural places I've been on. <laughs> Um, so, as you know, I'm really passionate about nutrition and lifestyle medicine being promoted more at medical school, as um, so much research now has shown, and yeah, qualitative data from students, that there just isn't enough, and um, surveys that we've actually done have shown that doctors and medical students just don't feel confident to even advise patients around diet and lifestyle. So um, I wanted to just kind of get your take about um, this area and do you think greater emphasis should be put on? What's your experience with it been like at Nottingham? Yeah, so I think really the, the only real experience we've had of um, teaching on food and nutrition came in my second year. So we did a module called ASN, which stands for the Alimentary System and Nutrition. Mm -hmm. So that basically covered, you know, digestion and a little bit then probably three or four lectures on nutrition but I think what I found and probably you know this might be common to a lot of people is that although we did get some kind of guidance on nutrition it felt like it was more information that was just kind of it was almost it felt like it was almost there for the sake of it it didn't it didn't feel like there was that real world application to be able to then go on and sort of give to patients you know the sort of stuff I can remember from it was kind of things like how to work out the energy or the calories in a food or it was something about what what things contain vitamin D or what food groups but there was never really that, that great application where I could say be a GP in the future and then say okay here's some advice with regards to healthy eating it felt it felt there was more of a kind of scientific basis of nutrition rather than the application to really use in the real world yeah and completely as you say that is exactly what's been echoed by the majority of medical students in our network and just um in general 
And it is, yeah, it's an issue because, you know, we're taught, like you say, the physiology, the anatomy and the biochemistry of the digestive system, but not actually how to clinically apply the information to that patient sat in front of you who has a chronic condition or is on their way to having a chronic condition that could be avoided by giving them some dietary advice and simple dietary interventions and lifestyle interventions. So I totally agree with you. It really is about kind of getting it more into consultation skill practice and really like showcasing the research within different specialties of how effective dietary interventions can actually be because then I think it will carry weight for students who might not really get its kind of relevance because I agree it's sometimes just tacked on like yeah yeah that's how it feels I think sometimes and you know I think although that has been probably some good steps I think you know probably some of the nutrition content that we've had you know a couple of years ago has probably been improved upon because yeah, there's a, there's a new curriculum now at Nottingham that's been implemented since and you know I'd hope that things have probably improved and there's been more information given but ultimately there still needs to be more done I think you know on a regular basis definitely and yeah we're so lucky we've got a Nutritank branch at Nottingham and we hope they really start to educate more and more students about the perks um of you know using nutrition for your own self-care but also how you can help future patients so yeah look out for look out for events when you do when we do all eventually go back i'm sure the branch will put on some lovely things so um i know you talk about this on your instagram and you go through some of the specialties you've experienced so tell us what your kind of highlights have been from certain placements and what you perhaps are leaning towards yeah, so we started, I mean, Nottingham's a bit of a weird degree because um, and in, our, in our five-year degree, we also do like the interclated mm. part of it in the five years. So, the BMED side, I remember that from yeah. when I was applying. So, so for me, I've been on placement since about March of last year. So actually in total, I've only had about a year of kind of clinical placement. I see, um, okay. Since, you know, obviously the COVID-19 has started. Um, you know, we stopped in March of this year and we only restarted in March of last year. So, so far we've kind of covered um, the kind of general medicine and surgery parts in year three. And then year four we've done things like obs and gynae, um, psychiatry, ear, nose and throat, eyes, um, skin, um, paediatrics, which I was doing at the time of when everything got cancelled. So I've not, not had a proper... Um, introduction to paediatrics unfortunately um, but as, as for things that I'm kind of really interested in it probably be more leaning towards the surgical side of things so um, as part of like my, my student selective module that we got to do in the summer of last year um, I got to do four weeks in orthopaedic surgery in um, Poland actually oh wow that's exciting yes that was really really cool so um, this, we, get, we get four weeks basically where we can choose a specialty of our choice and like a small number of us get to go abroad for that so I ended up getting to go to Warsaw um, which is the capital and yeah did four weeks in kind of orthopaedics so again it was obviously great to see like a new healthcare system and I guess you know seeing a completely new country meeting new friends but yeah ultimately seeing I guess having orthopaedic surgeries carried out in Poland which I haven't, I haven't actually seen orthopaedic surgery yeah. in the UK so I've got, I've got real, no real basis of comparison yet um, but yeah otherwise I think yeah orthopaedic surgery has been good I quite like the idea of general surgery which is kind of more that 
um, digestive system, I guess, sort of GI tracts. And then, you know, ear, nose and throat was also something that I found quite good in fourth year. So, to me, I think I prefer kind of the hospital-based medicines, mm-hmm. the community-based medicine at the moment. Um, so, hopefully, surgery is something that I'll be looking to do. Yeah, and hopefully you'll get to make them all up in good time, the ones that you've missed. Yeah, well, I can only hope so. I mean, yeah, for us, we've got our, we've got our online knowledge course starting in the next few days in Nottingham, and we're not expected to go back really in, in, into placement until the end of August, so yeah. we're actually going to have to have a lot of online learning. But, but yeah, I'm hoping that kind of after that, then I can you know see lots of things still on placement. Mm. So. Yeah, we're doing online learning at the moment. It started like three weeks ago. And it was really weird having consultation skills with a patient actor via Skype the other day. Like, it was so, um, just, yeah, it was so, like, unhuman, inhumane, whatever the word is, because you're just talking to a screen and trying to be empathetic and there are no social cues you can use, like, here, have a tissue, or um, giving someone, like, a nice kind of empathetic um touch or something like that you just can't so i mean yeah. i guess it's good to learn the skills though i really thought it was useful even though i thought it was quite weird and non-human um in the first place it made me think you know what we do need to be prepared to have these telecommunications if i become a gp and um you know half my afternoon could be doing phone calls i really need to be able to get to the bottom of what's going on with my patient via the phone without them being there and it's the same with like being an out of hours GP on one 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 and all that kind of thing. Like you just yeah, need absolutely. To. I mean, yeah. you know, it's something that all of us going to have to do probably at some point is you know speak to patients over the phone. And you are really as well starting to see, I guess, the kind of emergence of these um, mm. kind of online GP applications. You know, remote GP. So yeah, I guess yeah. being able to use technology is definitely useful as well. Exactly. And so to wrap up, um, who do you follow on Instagram that you find inspiring? Who, yeah, what kind of, from accounts that aren't medical to doctors that you may follow, could you give our listeners some recommendations? Okay, um, so I guess, yeah, I'll start off with them from a medical point of view because that's probably easier. So um, probably something that, you know, a lot of people have heard of is Dr. Mike. He's probably, um, so he's a guy kind of, or a doctor, um, Family medicine doctor, basically a GP um, for UK listeners. Um, and he's based in like, the USA. Um, and he's got a really cool YouTube channel, uh, Instagram page, where he just talks and kind of debunks a lot of kind of myths. And I guess, yeah, it gives that really informative account of medicine that's also kind of applicable to kind of people that aren't medical people. So, you know, he can really explain things in a great way. Um, to everyone, basically. Um, in terms of in terms of non-medical people, I, w- I wouldn't say there's anyone massively. I mean, I guess people that I look at that have, you know, that have done amazing jobs. I guess to me, like The Rock, you know, mm. in the way that you know he's kind of gone from something like wrestling, and then you know he's tried his hand at acting, and he's really kind of done amazing Pivoted, lots of different yeah. things. Um, you know, even something like Arnold Schwarzenegger. When I look at you know somebody that's you know, done so well in his field of kind of bodybuilding, but then he's then gone into other fields of acting and so on, and really kind of done well at that. So I guess and politics, me, those, yeah. Those two are big inspirations, just because of you know they've they kind of learned these new skills kind of on the go. That they, they weren't trained actors originally, and yet they've kind of really put a lot of time and effort 
to, to really kind of enhance their skill set. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that's what's really exciting about this kind of new generation of doctors that are all coming through. And it's kind of just like you are able to have another identity and actually not keep it separate from your medical career, which I think is really inspiring and actually mould it. So you've got like Doctor's Kitchen, who's someone we work very closely with. Uh, Rupee's a GP and an amazing cook, super into nutrition. He moulds that all together. And I know that doctors who are super into DJing and they bring it all together to their social media profile and stuff like that. And I think it's really cool that we're now like in this kind of modern mindset where, you know, you don't have to be shy about your other talents and skills and you can actually use them like you do with your social media channels. You're not hiding them away. They're not separate from your medical degree. They're actually part of it. And I think it's, yeah, it's, it's really inspiring. And I think it's quite exciting for the future of medicine. It just makes it you know, all the more kind of adaptable and, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it definitely makes more people interested in kind of medicine, I think. There's always, there was always, I guess, that, that, that kind of notion that all kind of medics are very nerdy mm. and they're socialised and they've got no other kind of real interest outside of medicine, I think. But with, you know, sort of people like, you know, you spoke about Doctor's Kitchen, Doctor Mike and others, I think it does help to show that, you know, you can do other things outside of medicine, that, you know, you can also be a normal person, as weird as it sometimes. Completely. No, trust me. <laughs> I know what you mean. And, yeah, no, it is, it is really great that also, like, you can do different intercalations that then give you those skills for your future career. Like, I know, um, like, for instance, last year I intercalated that Imperial in... Uh, something really different in medical humanities philosophy and law because I wanted to kind of just get a bigger picture of humanity and really understand patients as people and you know uh, kind of understand illness narratives from the patient's perspective rather than you know being in the clinical position and and you can do things like management um, at Imperial as well where um, you, know, you can really learn the business side of the healthcare system and how it all works and then there's the NHS clinical entrepreneurship program so I think there's so many cool opportunities you don't just have to stay on you know the regular pathway that I think people in older generations have done yeah I think absolutely yeah you are seeing more medics kind of try their hand at other things you know some of them that I know are kind of more into like entrepreneurial things you know setting up businesses so yeah, I think it's definitely making it aware that, you know, you can be a doctor or a medic or a medical professional, but then also have kind of other interests that, you know, definitely, I guess as well, there's also kind of more options now, you know, things like part-time work, mm. so, you know, you can do, you can do lots of other things. Well, there are all those, like, technology, uh, digital healthcare apps as well. We had, I think, you know, well, uh, we had Dr. Sahib, um, Umtiaz, uh, the digital health doctor, on our podcast a few weeks ago, and he's like telling us all about um, Babylon and all different like health tech things, and you know you can do so much as a doctor and get involved with things. Yeah, I think the great thing about social media is it kind of advertises that those kind of aspects are available. I mean, I know I'd probably say you know when I applied for medicine, I don't think there was really much out there. And, it felt like it was a very kind of linear course, mm. but you know, as as you kind of see over the last maybe twelve or eighteen months, that there's a lot more medical professionals on social media that can kind of give an indicator of the other things that you can do, kind of within medicine, but then also outside of medicine. Completely, it really shows you that you can pivot, but still stay really close to, um, you know, what you trained in originally. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, yeah. you, see, you see new things come out all the time. You know, obviously TikTok's the kind of new big thing. Yeah. I, I want you to teach my team TikTok. Can we have an afternoon tutorial session with, with Dr. <laughs> Ethan? We can arrange it. <laughs> I'd love it. I think it's so cool. I just love how quick it is. It's such a good way to digest information. Yeah, so catchy. I have the songs. You know, like the songs from the main ones that are out there. They are so in my head. It's yeah, all, all the viral songs. Are pretty funny. They only leave my head. But yeah, no, it's super entertaining. We'll definitely, yeah, we'll definitely arrange a little TikTok collab because we're soon to come on. Yeah. Um, and so tell us what the future's looking like for Student Doctor and Dr. Ethan. What can we look forward to seeing on your channels? I think, you know, for me, it's all about kind of, you know, continuing to document the things that I'm doing, you know, continuing to produce content. So I think, you know, from a TikTok point of view, a lot of it's geared towards kind of, a lot of it's to do kind of weird medical facts or kind of answering medical questions. So it's really about engaging, you know, lots of people with mm. with medicine. Um, and then, you know, with Instagram and YouTube, it kind of transitions more into um, I guess documenting more of my life as I go through my career, YouTube, um, again, pivots between sort of medical student videos and also kind of um, explaining sort of medical topics in an easy to understand way. Mm. So, you know, from that point of view, it's, it's all about creating content, I guess, mm. um, and just seeing where things go. Yeah, well, that's so exciting and we can't wait to yeah watch you further on this journey. It's been amazing to just see how well you've done since you've started your profile. And so inspiring for, I'm sure, so many listeners, especially because you've not even qualified yet and yeah, you've become known. Um, and so I also wanted to ask you, do you feel like you kind of, I don't know if you do, but do you feel like you understand medical topics more yourself from having to break it down into bite-sized chunks to explain it to your audience? Do you feel like it actually cements the knowledge in your head more? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's probably one of the best revision techniques. I was going to say! <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, like, for sure. Yeah. Also, you know, if you can, if you can honestly explain things, you know, do the research on a topic and then mm. kind of break it down into simpler terms or into, like, bite-sized chunks... And then talk about it at a different level so kind of people that aren't medically um, you know, involved. Then mm. yeah, it definitely helps in terms of cementing knowledge. You know, I mean I've done sort of videos on like the science of alcohol recently, you know, I've got some coming out about things like caffeine and vitamin supplements and kind of talking about these various kind of medical topics in the media. So yeah, being able to kind of do the research and take those topics and then be able to explain them definitely helps the revision, yeah, for sure. Absolutely, and I think it will actually make you an even better doctor because you're able to actually break it down into meaningful terms that are simple for the patients out in front of you who, like you say, might not have that medical basis. And so it's almost like, you know, this kind of teaching needs to go into medical schools. It would be a very modern way of teaching people on how to actually translate the jargon into something public-facing by creating things like a YouTube video or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, even from my experience and from a lot of people at Nottingham, I think, you know, especially on our GP, GP attachments, that being able to try and explain sort of complex medical things mm -hmm. in simple ways was probably one of the hardest parts of the attachment. You know, you try to explain even you know simple conditions in your head like diabetes or high blood pressure or heart problems, and then try to explain that to somebody that doesn't have the medical knowledge is actually really difficult. Yeah. 
It's an amazing skill, and it's a sign of like proper intelligence being able to explain something complicated in the most simple terms possible. And yeah, yeah. Like it shows that you've got that knowledge, you know, of the, the, of the topics and exactly. you're not just kind of reciting a textbook definition. <laughs> exactly. And so um, this is a question I ask all my guests who come on. Um, so as you know, at Nutritank, we all love our food and are big into cooking from scratch. And so I want to ask you um, what your ideal last supper would be. So imagine in a parallel universe, you only had one day left to live. What would be your kind of, yeah, last supper, start, main and dessert? It doesn't have to be healthy. It's, you've got yeah. one day to live. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. I don't think my final supper would be that healthy. Um, I think in terms of starts, I'm probably quite boring. I'll probably be something like, I don't know, garlic bread sort of garfield. Yeah. So fair. Just some chicken wings because yeah, I'm, I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm particularly uh, interested in anything like a prawn cocktail or anything that's a bit more extravagant. That's so um, fair. Yeah, for my main course, I think it has to be something chicken based. That's definitely like my favourite kind of meat. So any kind of like Nando's or sort of marinade on some chicken, um, maybe some chips and some vegetables maybe. Although that's a little bit questionable for a last supper. <laughs> Yeah. So that's just the one. The what, one Ben and Jerry's or the Domino's one? Yeah, like Domino's, like Pizza Hut. I mean, literally any dessert shop that does cookie dough, I'm, I'm there. You're on board. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Wow. Another wonderful guest. Stay tuned for new episodes on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Nutritank is an award-winning, innovative information hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine, with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now! Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice, so please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians, and your doctors. Thank you.